Last week, we heard from an OG in the Air Force combat controller world, Tim Brown. We're back again, thanks to our friends with the First There Foundation, talking to another member of the Special Forces community. Johnny Fast joins the show today. He's got a hell of a name, and he's an incredible guy who just three weeks after the towers fell on 9-11 was over in the desert hunting down the heads of state, guys like Osama bin Laden. He has some incredible stories, and we honor a fallen brother, Medal of Honor recipient John Chapman, on this episode of Pick Up the Six Podcast. All right, guys, Brian Jodis back once again for another episode of Pick Up the Six Podcast. You heard me talk about the first there foundation in that intro. So grateful for them. This is our second in a series uh, with real intentionality. We've talked to guys in that combat controller space before, but Eric and I got to brainstorm and, and we were like, let's, let's, let's let people, let's remind them what first there is doing. And at the same time, introduce them to some of the folks, Eric, that you know, right. That are making a difference uh, that have done some pretty incredible stuff on behalf of our country. And that's what brings us to Johnny fast today. Who's got arguably one of the coolest nicknames in the history of the show. So here we are. What's up, man. Yeah, unfortunately, it's not a nickname. It's actually my birth name. Did I say nickname? I meant real name. Like you got one of the coolest yeah. names. You got one of the coolest yeah. names in the history of the show. Most would assume. It's worth. Yeah, most would assume like, oh, it's a cool nickname he got along the way. Like, no, that's legal document. Yep, that's the name. <laughs> you also told me uh, it didn't do me a lot of good as I was going through training because I was usually one of the, did you say one of the slower guys? So maybe that didn't help your cause. So my particular selection course, uh, we had some collegiate runners that were running, you know, sub five minute miles. And then here I come brandishing this name. And, you know, I was kind of like the pace horse in the back. If you're behind me, you're going to fail. If you're in front of me, you're okay. So, you know, kind of served its purpose, I guess. But got a lot of negative attention from the uh, cadre and staff. <laughs> you always kind of want to limit the ways in which they can come at you. And you're like, well, shit. Absolutely. My last name is going to give them plenty of ample opportunity. Absolutely. What are you going to do, right? Yep. Well, listen, man, I'm thrilled to do it. Grateful for you to come on and, and talk about this. And man, again, thanks to Eric and the guys at First There Foundation. In fact, folks watching online today, show them that show them that shirt. I know that's a First There Foundation shirt. So we're just giving them plugs right off the top of the show, man. Yeah, I have to do the uh, the back portion too. Because, yeah. Uh, you know. All right. So what do we got, got back there? there? Yeah. Walk us through what's on there. We got uh, Airborne, Halo, and Combat Dive. All so three the, uh, major big- components that go into that? Yep, it's the big three triad and uh, just a method of employment so you can get to your job and, and do your work. Yeah. Well, we've been excited, man, to, to dig back. What's really cool is sort of the juxtaposition of last week's episode and this week, right? So last week we're talking to Tim Brown, combat controller. Absolute like uh, Absolute legend. You're 100% right. And I think he was like the 19th dude into that 24th squadron, which becomes the Air Force to the best of my studying and research, sort of special operations and ultimately combat controllers. And this dude's there in the 80s, parts of things like jumping into Panama in 1998 or 1989, excuse me. And it was just an absolute thrill, man, to kind of get a history lesson from him last week. So when you when you yeah. hear that name, Tim Brown, you you say absolute legend. What does that mean, right? What does that mean to you? So I had a unique uh, push into the Air Force because I actually met a helicopter DEA pilot that had a brother that was serving at the Hill, which we called it at the time. So my journey coming into the Air Force, I actually thought that that's where I'd go directly, you know, not really having much of an understanding of how things work and what stripes you have to earn before you can actually merit going to a a tier one unit. Um, But 
all the guys back in the day, you know, they were known for tight jeans, polo shirts, and long hair. And I'm like, you know, that's the place that I need to be. So I tried the best and the fastest time I possibly could to get up to that unit. And I think part of the uh, pre-9-11 days, it helped me fast track to get there, probably undeserving to some extent because of Mm. how young I was and how inexperienced I was. So uh, going through that journey and knowing the guys that jumped into Panama, uh, you got your John McGarry's the world that ran the Mogadishu mile. I mean, these were absolute living legends within our community. And that's just kind of what we looked up to and aspired to be. So, you know, it helped motivate and drive the decisions that I made within my career, though, be it fairly short compared to mm. some of the pat or the uh, further generations that followed that did 20 years of, of the GWAT, which is just incredible. You know, if you just sit there and think about sustained operations under the South umbrella, it, it's just unimaginable. Yeah, obviously, we've had a lot of conversations that I sort of date, you know, right of 9-11 as sort of that pivotal moment. But then we've also had plenty that have been kind of left of that. And you think about guys like Tim Brown and man, even guys like my friend, commander Kirk Lippold, right? That's a, that's a left of nine 11 moment, right? That attack on yeah. USS Cole in, in 2000 before nine 11 guys, there was 10, 12. We remember that here guys like Jeff Struker, man, Black Hawk down and sort of yep. the way that um, we hope that those legends live on, right? Because time gets yeah, further and absolutely. further away from us. That's why we want to talk to Tim last week. Yeah. And, you know, part of the, the thought process I had prior to, you know, global change and event like that was if you're going to do something that's going to be quick, uh, explosive and responsive, it's going to have to be at a special mission unit mm-hmm. that, you know, people read about in the papers maybe two weeks or a month later. They never knew you were there. So I kind of had that dream vision in my head that, you know, that's where you had to be. And then you have 9-11 happen and it's like, okay. This is going to be uh, the next twenty years of our life, and yeah, what I don't think was that? Had that idea. What was that expectation like? Because we're all sitting there on that Tuesday morning, right? You had been in the military yep. for four years or so at this point, give or take a little bit, right? That yep. thing happens. I, I gotta think very quickly, especially being in the kind of unit you were in. You were like, "We're going fast and we're going quick." Was that the sense? It was. We were actually uh, in a course called SB-91, which is kind of like your advanced interrogation camp slappy. And uh, we actually got pulled out of probably doing some extra love treatment because of the, the situation that took place. So if you remember, you know, all air travel shut down. Yeah. But a few Smile. days later, we're sitting at the Spokane airport. You know, we're the only ones allowed in there. And they flew a Learjet, took our entire team, took us back to Bragg, and we started packing our bags and uh, getting prepped for you know, whatever was going to come. What were those first? Cause you told me, I mean, it was basically like three weeks later, right? Like three yeah. weeks after towers are down three weeks. I mean, it, it back stateside, it's fresh, man. It's raw. Like we're living through this. There's still rubble and debris. You guys are, are calling to action. What, what were those, what were those first moments? Like it was a lot of uncertainty, excitement, fear, you know, um, you know, this was pre YouTube days and it was pre direct deposits, you know, I was creating a year's worth of checks to write to my condo association because I'm like, well, we're going to come for, you know, you had no idea you knew that you were going to deploy a huge envelope and it could be two weeks, it could be a year. So you still kind of some of the administrators in the background, you mentally bring yourself and I'd never been to combat point. It's like you have this is what you could be like, you've stored guys, you've done, you've trained. 
it's that you know adaptation that bots they've been working at this point. You think, hey, this is answer me to prove that I can actually do my job, and uh, you know we don't just train for fun. We got to go out and perform. Hey, so who are you? Can you paint the picture like what the scene around you is like, right? Because I know uh, just based on conversations we've had and learning more, right? From an Air Force standpoint, right? Air Force Special Operator Combat Controller standpoint, th- there's a lot fewer of you guys than there are Green Berets, Navy SEALs, other special operators. So we talked about sort of the timeline, right? It basically three weeks after the towers fall and you guys are headed to the desert. Who are you going with, right? What's that unit like? Yep. So the unit's already thin as it is because, you know, at that time there was probably 320 worldwide and then you go up to the hill and there's probably, I don't know, I guess maybe 60 at best. And you already have people in pre-deployment cycles within the other branches of service. So you already kind of have a skeleton crew. And then whatever team is kind of on its off cycle, because we used to roll off the jort cycle, then those were kind of the unilateral local people that are just doing your core specific training that you're doing just to prep for any type of worldwide deployment that you need. But we pushed the entire package, basically the entire squadron went. So you had your attachments, to blue, green, and any coalition or agency-type requirements. And uh, because I was so young and because I was an E4 and, you know, 23 years old, I pushed out with just the, the unilateral mission set. And we got into uh, the our original staging and launching location, which wasn't actually in-country. And they had some other, you know, SIF and ODA-type members out to the north. And everyone's kind of pushing through that front, which is where you get your Bart Deckers of the world and your Calvin Markhams. And, you know, all these people are just doing amazing things. Um, but because I was young and still having to kind of cut my teeth, I got chalked up to CSAR in the beginning. And though it's incredibly important, I was not happy with it. Uh, I didn't want to fly in a C-130 with a bundle of... Uh, we had some quads and, and a Zodiac, maybe some jet skis, because if anything happened during any of these big named operations, we were going to be the ones that would push in and, you know, help the rescue effort. Um, an interesting story about that, we had a, a Hawaiian brother of mine, Kyoki Bulla, he was a PJ, and the chow hall staff that served us loved him more than life itself. And they would always give him heaping, you know, portions of food, and I'd always look at him like, hey, man, I'm pretty hungry, too. And he's a big boy. And I'd always tease him about, you know, skipping leg day. And he's like, bro, that's why God invented jeans, you know, because he'd like (laughs) to cover up the uh, inadequacies on the lower half of the body. But uh, we were underway for one operation, and there was a meteor shower that happened on this night. We're flying map of the air type stuff because I don't think we quite had air superiority at the time. And the pilot calls me up, and he's like, hey, is this surface-to-air fire? First of all, I'm like, how would I know? You know, I'm not a pilot. You fly for a living. I run around on the ground. So I go up there, put my MVGs on. We're looking out. It looks like, you know, Baghdad, maybe first Iraq invasion. And it, you know. Are they fly, do, they fly night vision? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, we're just completely blacked out map of the earth. Yep. Well, the low-level altitude warning system was broke. And, you know, we're kind of in this circular pattern that we're just maintaining if we need to push in on anything. And next thing you know, I've never felt G-forces in a C-130 that hard before because we almost crashed on the side of a mountain. And, you know, they yanked back and it, uh, I couldn't sleep on those flights anymore, even though they're pretty boring. Yeah. But uh, it, was a, it was an interesting wake up. Um, during this time, we have 
you know, tons of legends in the making or already within the unit. Uh, you got Mike LaMonica, everybody's starting to do combat jumps, and I was just chomping at the bit. And as a new guy, I didn't carry much weight or leverage. So uh went up to Bruce Dixon, another legend within our community, and I said, hey, Bruce, I got a lot of skill and capability. Like, how do I get on some of this action? I've been just flying in a plane. And I was able to uh, wiggle my way into a combat jump in Afghanistan. So that was uh, my first little big check mark within my short period within yeah. my career. Well, building up, building up some credibility, right? As you go through those moments, you told me it's sort of like the wild, wild West. Cause you guys are figuring this stuff out. I mean, first time going into Afghanistan is going in for combat. Like you'd never been, never been there before. You'd never been anywhere like that on any other kind of deployment or downrange activity. No. Cause I'd come in on the tail end of, uh, um, Kosovo. And mm-hmm. kind of that operation. So, right. I mean, you know, you yep. spend two years of your life in the pipeline just training. So you're kind of oblivious to world events. You're just trying to make it through each selection checkpoint. And by the time you get to your first, you know, tier two unit, you're trying to get all your checkoffs and your, your signups. And, you know, back at the time we called it SOTAC. There wasn't like a JTAC program. There were, there were special operations tactical air controllers. And, you know, you're just focusing on those things, a lot of OP casts, you know, some real benign type things, but you've already got a pretty good idea of how that fourth dimension works, how you're going to rack and stack aircraft within, how you utilize all the assets. You know, you start to study munitions and what's going to be most effective on different, you know, target points. But, uh, yeah, no, no deployed experience other than fun training trips of, you know, diving in the Philippines or skydiving different places in the world because that's kind of how pre 9-11 was yeah who could make the coolest justified packages for training to go all over the world and get it signed off by the commander so that was a a tactic in itself yeah and then you know that fateful day happens and that stuff sort of goes out the window right you focus on major mission that ultimately to your point right is 20 plus years of of activity i want to talk about sort of what the mission at hand was but you've talked about sort of tier one tier two do you mind explaining the difference for us because you know i know a famous sort of tier two unit that a lot of people know about are the guys from 12 strong right the these guys on horseback in the early days working with the cia in afghanistan can you explain for us the difference tier one tier two yeah absolutely so um every controller and pararescue and now i think they have sr and uh, some soft tech they're all Tier two, in my mind, is the most phenomenal fighters you can imagine. And the reason being is the only true difference is kind of the level of importance of mission set. I mean, there are some intricacies that go along with the tier one mission set that, you know, you won't find your your general tier tier two guys going. But if I stepped out the door on a mission, I had the world dedicated to me. Where tier two guys, they can find themselves doing humanitarian, you know, aid transport, they can just be sitting out on a fob, and I mean, they're just getting in the thick of it daily. And they have to get on like an airborne cast network to try to request something that may be denied. And I never got to experience that. You know, I kind of was a little spoiled by going right into a very fast-paced, high-level tempo team where I didn't have to coordinate any of that stuff. Like, I had people come to me saying, can I get in on this? And, you know, so it spoiled me but gave me an appreciation for, you know, sharing stories with friends that have just done things that I couldn't even imagine. And the irony is the tier two guys that are just as good as anyone else, but haven't gone up to that, you know, smaller selection piece, they're doing more with less. 
Mm. And the guy at the top, though, very proficient and incredibly dangerous in the beginning, you know, we sat on the sidelines a lot because we're only allowed to go after the top three. They yeah. weren't going to waste a national asset going for, for fire. So, you know, we sat there and watched other guys come back. And I'm like, man, we haven't even, you know, tested our salt yet. And they're coming back with, you know, 105 shells and regaling of war stories. And we're like, hmm, because mm-hmm. we didn't know how long it's going to last. You know, this could be over in two weeks to a month. So we were kind of all chomping at the bit. Yeah. The, the mission for you guys at that level are basically the heads of state, right? Yes. The, the biggest names, Bin Laden, yes. Sarkawi. I was thinking through the other names. Was, is it Baghdadi, Zahari? Like who else were you guys? You're, you're chasing, you're chasing the bad, the bad dudes. They're basically the, the, the level approval target lists. And they had to be, you know, you're just sitting by waiting for something from intelligence to, to kick off so you can step out the door and hopefully prosecute. And back then, the Army and the Navy, you know, the intel gathering after 20 years is just incredible now. I mean, it is a well-orchestrated machine. Back then, you had a lot of politics and inner service, inner agency. And, you know, a lot of your collection was coming from case handlers out in the field of the agency or, you know, some military intelligence. But it's always you capture one guy, shake him down, that leads to your next target, you know. And, and those things were forming at such a rapid pace where we were still trying to figure out where our North era was. And it was, it was interesting. And as a young guy, it was eye opening for sure. Yeah. Who else was around you? Meaning what are, what are the other branches? What are their teams? Are they, are they names that our, our listeners might recognize? Yeah. You got, um, Dev grew, obviously CAG or green. Um, they do some AFO type operations too, some kind of low biz type things. And then I think, I, I couldn't tell you the history, but just as a unilateral force, you know, that's not something that we were big into back then because we, we attached, you know, yeah. we bring the air power to the fight. So they were kind of genning up, whether it's going to be an airfield seizure, taking down Rhino, you know, all these different named objectives that we'll have for future launch pad because we didn't own very much geographical features within country at that time. You know, you had the Northern Alliance and you had the push from Bart Decker and all those guys, you know, 12 strong. Mm-hmm. rolling in and we're just kind of hanging low saying let's just wait till his voice comes up somewhere and then we're going to go hit him so a lot of that first section was just kind of establishing a footprint within theater and then once uh, Bagram fell you know you pushed forward and that became the new base of operations for the next 20 years and it was just mind-boggling it's kind of crazy man you think about all the work that goes into it seizing Bagram and you just said it's the base of operation for 20 years. And I think about the way it sits today is probably, I know it's got to have you guys in a certain kind of way. I would think. I mean, if you, if you had a degree in logistics and you looked at the 24 hour flight operations for 20 years of materials, forced labor buildup that went into that country to, uh, you know, just bounce and leave the keys. It's, it's insane, you know, but I mean, from a cost standpoint, you know, probably cost more to try to get it out of there. So you got to, got to bid things in place and, and boogie and hope that uh, it doesn't get used against you in the future. Yeah. You mentioned that name, Dev Grew. Our listeners will know, right? Sort of famous name, uh, SEAL Team Six are those guys. Uh, your military career takes you from 97 to 2004. And it's another seven or eight years uh, before that, that number one target ultimately. Uh, he's got a house party that gets disrupted by those guys and uh, vengeance finally served. That that far removed from it, right? 
to be sort of that far removed from that final act, but to have been a part of the beginning of that, right? The beginning process to go in to get this guy, ultimately bring that that one major dude to justice in bin Laden. May 2nd, 2011, what's that What's that moment like for you sitting and watching it probably like most of us were? Uh, jealousy to some extent, because, you know, immediately I tried to get on the phone and everything was so hush-hush because I wanted to know uh, which branch got them and who of our guys was on it because it was the day after my birthday. I'm a May 1st baby. Um, a lot of pride, too, you know, because you, you kind of need a finish line to something, even though if it's symbolic. Yeah. There's just things that, that changed everybody in America's lives for a generation, you know. But the irony is, you know, I came in pre 9-11 and anyone that came in after, you know, they had more motivation and vision than me knowing what they were going to get themselves into. So you got to take your hats off to guys that I just, you know, had more of a mindset. I want to do something cool, but there's nothing major brewing. And then that takes place and it's it's mind boggling. But unfortunately, it's just a multi headed snake and, you know, bad people are everywhere and they need to die, you know, take politics out of it. What these uh, men and women do daily out there that still continues to this day, you know, Hollywood gets paid millions of dollars to pretend to be someone that did that. And you got these people going out there daily, just just taking it to them. You know, it's not political. They're just doing it for the betterment of the society. And uh, it's something to be honored for. Yeah. I mean, you think about how that's depicted in a lot of those movies, whether it's 12 strong, 13 hours, they all, I mean, all the way back to Black Hawk Down, right? Because that movie comes out a long time ago. But then all, you know, American Sniper and all those where it is, it's an interesting way that, you know, and I, I think there's a lot of good that comes out of creating films like that because look, we, we talked to uh, multiple guys that were a part of Red Wings, including Spanky Peterson, who flies that payhawk, picks Marcus Luttrell up, right? Josh Apple, who is the PJ that has to jump out of the back of the bird, puts a red dot on Marcus's chest. I mean, he's about to shoot him because they don't know if he's good or bad. And, yeah. and there's a lot of, a lot of, there's a lot that didn't happen right in in real time that doesn't uh that doesn't get in there's a lot of things that happen that they tell that story I'm like shit the movie should have absolutely done that it would have been way cooler if yeah. they could have pulled that off but yeah. i think I, I guess my point is there's good that's served i think by creating those things so we as americans at home can consume that and at least get some things like, what the heck you guys are doing over there the, all the incidents. and it's also wild too man like you put all that time into it you don't get to be a part of it. So you, I get the jealousy piece, right? You get the pride piece. It's just somebody, but it's somebody's got to step up and be in that moment. What, Absolutely. um, what are your guys, right? What combat control were there combat control guys that were part of that night? Um, that I don't, I've never gotten a clear answer to. And I, you know, I, I don't push too hard on sure. some things because, you know, you, you sign a lot of NDAs and, and once you go to that level of things, although it just gets destroyed daily every time a new book or, or movie or something comes out, you start to know what is that moral guideline. And I think technology has gotten so fast paced under the envelope of secrecy mm. that you can't do it. Like I remember launching on, on hits where Geraldo saying, Hey, we just had, you know, six Blackhawks depart and a couple gunships take off. And you're thinking like, Hey man, we're just blowing the element of surprise. Yeah. And then you come back. We, we, we just, we all want to know, right. We want to know. And you're like, yeah. Yeah. Hold on and to this one for a little bit. And But you come back and you see the twist of the story on something that you were on. And it's like, wait a minute, that sounds like something completely different. So I get the fact that we all need to know, but there is a, a time delay that should naturally be built in just for the safety 
of the operation and what people are doing. You know, the transparency should come later, yeah. but maybe not as fast as it does in today's day and age of technology. Uh, look, man, I'd also make the argument that there's some things that everybody doesn't need to know because we might need to replicate that again in the future. You never and, know. You know that's kind of how technology gets introduced is, you know, you hold on to those third and fourth generation type things until they find a way to combat the first and second. Yeah. And, you know, that timeline on development and research, it has to be kind of stoved off to some extent. Mm -hmm. So I think you're absolutely right. Hey, Johnny, we've been taking time to talk about heroes on these shows, right? Guys that had an impact on on you guys that were able to come home, right? Specifically those that didn't pay that ultimate price. I want to talk about one of those guys in a second. Before that, let's have a little fun because you told me the story about basically going to a checkpoint. You guys are with Hamid Karzai. There's a lot of security detail around sort of this, govern, this government that we put in place. And mm -hmm. uh, things go a little south, but luckily it's a happy ending to that, that one. Yeah, so it was... Uh quite the calamity of events that took place. You know, we went down with uh, about six people and a couple agency guys. And our first briefing was that uh, the Minister of Defense, Khan, was the people's general and that they wanted him to be the president. Naturally, Karzai gets taken in the seat. So he says he owns about 60 to 70% of Karzai's security detail. So at any time, these guys can turn on you. And, you know, we're not necessarily fighting force as much as we are a sales pitch at that point saying, hey, your life is very important to this whole process. We need to bring more people in. So General Daly and General McNeil, we went to pick them up at Bagram. And ironically enough, and I can't remember which one, but we left one of them on the tarmac. So we're underway. And I think we left McNeil because Daly looks at me and goes, where's McNeil? And I'm up ICS in the helicopter, so I'm contacting the other, you know, flight and saying, hey, do you guys got the general with you? And we left him on the tarmac. How that happens, I have no idea. That can't be good. So, he's yeah. not He's not so, thrilled, is he? I'm sure he's not, but, you know, this meeting had to take place. Yeah. So we get daily to the meeting, and everything kept bumping right. You know, there was all kinds of just flow problems and everything else. So we finally get him secured at the airport. We get him back to Bagram. And we're in a vehicle with a couple agency guys heading back. And there's illegal and legal checkpoints. And again, mind you, this is very early on. We don't own any real estate in Afghanistan. I think we have the Ariana Hotel, maybe Hotel International down there. It's kind of some staging points, uh, some contract security. And as we turn the corner, there's two tanks and probably like 100 men. And we turn the lights off. And the guy that's driving, you know, they're only armed with their whatever issued sidearm that they have. And we're kind of kitted out in the back. And he just drives forward towards them like 15 miles per hour. And we're like, hey, man, why don't you throttle back? Let's, let's evaluate the situation a little bit. And I think he just froze. I don't know. Maybe I'll get uh -huh. called out of the internet from this dude sometime. But we drove and parked probably 20 meters shy of this checkpoint and just had every gun that you could think of shoved in. Now, in your mind, you're going to John Wick this thing, you know, maybe disarm it <laughs> before they get <laughs> Right. But all you do is just straight pucker factor. And, you know, you're staring down the barrel of all these guns with a dialect that you don't speak, trying to give happy signs that, hey, we're one of the few Americans that are supposed to be in this area. And uh, Enam, which is one of the uh, president's aides or something, who had a crush on me. You know, he'd like to try to twirl my hair and I'd constantly lecture him like, hey, now, you know, I don't roll like that, but I appreciate it. 
Yeah, listen, flattered nonetheless, right? But, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. And he actually uh, came out and saved our lives because he was able to talk everyone down and give us a, uh, we all have these credentials that we have made by their people. Mm-hmm. And we all had the name John Smith on it. And, you know, just had a picture of us with this unlimited restricted access. And we're trying to throw these things and have these kinds of things. They could care less. Could yeah. care less, right? And there had been some crazy situations earlier, some very high level people that got rolled up at illegal checkpoints and came back without their guns. And of course, you're judging all of us. Like, well, how could that happen? You know, we're the world's premier fighting. That's force. right. Yeah. And I'm sitting in that situation where I'm like, eh, you know, trying to plug this plug right. the barrel. Like, don't point that at me. Right. Yeah, it was, a, it was an interesting little situation. Well, your rugged handsomeness uh, got you out of that one. So that's good. Yeah, it did. It helped. <laughs> that's crazy, man. All right. Tell me about John Chapman, teammate, Medal of Honor recipient. I want to take yeah. a little time, lean in, right? Talk about a hero. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when I got, I was in the green team uh, in the 2000 timestamp. And, you know, you're you're meeting a lot of very mysterious, long-haired dudes at the time. And, you know, you're, you're just the fresh meat still going through. You know, it's another year-long selection, plus or minus, to get up to the tier one level. So you're going through all that antics and getting your 360 feedbacks and your peer reviews and spending time with the psychologist. And the process is absolutely fascinating. And, and mm. from what I hear, what Trey Free and those boys are doing up there now is just revolutionary. You know, it's not the strongest guy. It's, it's that mental aptitude that they're looking for. It's going to be a seamless fit because the, the one thing that's different about combat control is you don't usually operate as your normal team. You know, you get embedded into different personality groups and different stylistic. Yeah. CQP is different. You know, it's not universal amongst the tiers. So John was a very humble, like he just seemed like such a unique person. You know, he didn't personify arrogance or cockiness or walk around with his chest bowed out. Like he, he could just blend in anywhere. And I didn't get a, a ton of time with him, but it's just like, all right, you know, here's another introduction from some guys. And this is all, you know, pre 9-11 things. But when that all went down, I was up at beach on pre-alert. So we were just getting ready to push forward and rip those guys out. So my commander flew up and sat all the guys down. Um, I was with, my team had the SEAC, uh, uh, Ray Colon Lopez. He's now the most senior enlisted person in the military. Uh, PJ and Tony Negron. So it was my Puerto Rican powerhouses and myself, the Island Boys. So I don't think the Navy was ready for, for this level of personality to be going deploying with them. But uh, they brought us in and sat us down and we watched all the footage of what took place. And I think we we're probably three weeks from pushing forward. And when uh, those guys came back, you know, I got to talk to Turbo and Slab and, and you know, they gave me the hand hand account and don't blame those dudes for anything that, that went down that night. The politics afterwards, that's a whole other story that you can, you know, go in with knives blazing. But uh, what they all experienced that night was quite incredible. But the profound pride and nerves to kind of backfill that level of action was uh, humbling, to say the least, because that was, for us, our first loss. Mm. And, you know, we went in thinking, well, we're just going to shred everybody and come home unscathed. So that was a, a tough setback for, I think, the unit and everybody else involved to really show you that 
hey, these are some warriors that we're fighting as well. So maybe not peer-to-peer, but shit's going to happen. Yeah. I think it was probably an eye-opening part of all this was you know, run of the mountains, could bow these guys down, no problem. Yeah. And uh, fuckers were tough, man. <laughs> At least from they every are. story that has been told to me, right, by, by having the honor to sit with guys like you and hear that. Yeah. And if you see, you know, at that altitude, pitch black wintertime, who's going to be up there? You know, again, hindsight's twenty twenty. You can go back and just kind of pick that apart. But with the information that was had and, and how everybody was trying to get into that big sweep through the valley, you know, it, it happens. It is war. But, you know, he, he died an absolute legend. And if you got to go, I think that's the way most warriors want to. Though it's somber and sad, it should be celebrated. Absolutely. Can you tell us a little bit more about the actions he took that ultimately end in the awarding of that Medal of Honor? You know, I think most of that was probably more politically driven from my mm. opinion of it. You know, that we had such a microcosm view of everything that went down. And, you know, the stories and everything kind of changed throughout the years. Um, but if you just had the first-hand accounts of the team that was there, you know, they can look you in the eye and, you know, mm. it's like looking through the depth of someone's soul. They were, they were proud of the actions. And then as anything, time heals. And you know, I think psychology wise, they always say that in our minds, we perform better than, than how we actually did, you know, mm. and it's not like you're lying to yourself. I think the brain, that's a survival mechanism. And we all think that, hey, man, I mean, I was just a surgeon through there and did my thing. And I think based off of what went down, you know, all, all the actions that Slab did, I think, were correct based off the information that he knew at yeah. the time. He can't I, look I, at a feed. I was listening to, um, shoot, man, I think it was Rogan and that super smart guy, DeGrasse Tyson. And DeGrasse they talked, yeah, right. And they had this whole conversation about you can, you can ask three people that witnessed an event happen. And specifically ask the person that's involved in and then three people that watched it and you'll get three different accounts from their lens. Absolutely. Uh, and those are, those are people who are involved in it, right? Like yeah. I, this is a thing I did and could recount it different than somebody who was watching from over there. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. You know, I got, I got an amazing, amazing gift from Eric uh, over Christmas and it's a bottle of special bourbon with that lightning bolt etched on the back and a bunch of initials of guys from your community. And uh, I waited a while to open it. And I actually waited till my dad was down visiting tired three-star general, United States air force. I said, I haven't opened this yet. Guy, right? 15 guy. That's right. Blew that flag over my shoulder right there over the desert, uh, desert storm stuff. And I say, hey, well, let's, let's have a little drink of this together. And it was, uh, that's why we're doing this man is to take some time to, to reflect obviously on the careers of you guys that we get to talk to, but guys like John, Right. Mark Forrester, other yep. ones, right. That don't get, uh, that don't get to come home and, and maybe aren't household names. Right. We need America to remember those guys and gals too. And I, I agree with you. I mean, it's mind boggling to me that these aren't household names, but I, I understand as well. And, you know, we used to preach pretty heavily the, the quiet professional. And I think that era, it was absolutely right. Yeah, But it, once again, as you're adapting to technology and kind of how the world goes and everyone has 10 second attention spans on TikTok, you know, you have to keep these things relevant. And I think the hardest thing for guys transitioning is you have, you know, life or death decisions on your hands in a timely fashion and you spend the rest of your life chasing that dragon because mm. it is a drug. 
And then now if you don't have purpose, you know, people will go down pretty dark rabbit holes. And these guys, you will not find anything on such a young man's shoulders, the level of responsibility and expectation of performance. And it's a model that was really looked down upon by the other branches for a long time. It's like, how are you going to put, you know, someone like me, I'm with the top tier of the nation's defining, you know, force, and I've never done it before. But in my mind, you know, arrogant and some ignorance was helpful. He would have asked me. I thought I was the best thing to walk the planet, but I wasn't going to hesitate. You know, and that can be dangerous as well. Don't get me wrong. Mm. Fortunately, everything that I've been through, I came out on the other side without uh, getting any teammates killed. But that is a level of, you know, most people can't decide what they want to do for lunch, let alone if you're going to drop a bomb, you know, within 400 meters of somebody or all the way down to 60 meters. You know, those 105s chirp and, you know, gunships, daps, that that three-dimensional, fourth-dimensional battle space. And it's a symphony. You know, you have to be able to blend in with your team or else you're just banging a drum. It's out of beat. You know, so you got to know when to, to play your solo. And it's just incredible. It is just absolutely incredible. You look up, man, and, and you'll look at a calendar here in the next year or two, and you'll be almost 20 years removed from that, which I'm sure is kind of wild for you to think about. What do you do, Johnny, right? What are you? What have you been doing to stay sharp and to stay purpose-driven, right? Because that's such an intense purpose for that amount of time, right? It is. What have you been doing? Uh, I watched your podcast on uh, Connor. Yeah, Connor, Connor Matthews. Yeah. yeah. I, I kind of fell a path like his, but, you know, much longer ago. So I actually watched a ESPN special that had a running back that was 27 years old, and they were talking about how he was over the hill. And it freaked me out. Like, that was my first kind of pre-midlife crisis where I'm thinking, if I'm going to do something, it's got to be now. And I think I probably got too high too fast within the military because I'm like, well, what's next? Because I've always been someone that kind of, you know, chased dreams. So when I separated, you know, I tried to become an MMA fighter. And, you know, growing up in Hawaii, that's just what I did. Uh, but the traditional mindset back in the day was you, you trained one style. You didn't cross train. You know, it's my style is better than yours. And I grew up a few houses down from BJ Penn and, you know, just had a lot of a lot of buddies in oh, the industry. Shit, yeah. But I had zero grappling game. I was a stand-up guy. You know, I fought Muay Thai, Kyokushin. I went to the World Cup in Japan, like in high school. Like that's what I did. So my first fight, I had a whole OTC and green team came up and uh, watched me. And I think I've never been more nervous in my life. I think combat was was less nerve-wracking because I didn't want to get beat up in front of my friends. You know, well, especially in my peers. Everybody's looking at you, right? Like, everybody in nowhere there. to hide. Yeah. So one of the defining moments of that fight, the uh, promoter says, hey, what music do you want to walk out to? I'm like, I don't care. And I don't remember walking to the ring. But after watching the DVD later, it was uh, Christina Aguilera, I'm the genie in a bottle. And I was just mortified for it. Thank goodness I won very quickly. Well, thank so, God you won because that would have not been great had you taken you know, an L on that one. You know, you made the decision to leave a tier one unit, you know, having a pretty good military career and you punch out and you don't want to get beat up in front of all your friends. I did get beat up really good in front of some friends later, but, you know, I think it was good to be humbled like that. Yeah. How long did you end up fighting for? A uh, couple of years, but, you know, it was it was B-rate stuff and the promotion set up so I, I was uh, with Trevor Pramley and Josh Thompson, and I had some good UFC names with us. And 
I started off kind of being a sparring partner for Trevor because that was a natural 205er. And after, uh, and I was a natural 205er too, which was something rare back then. Mm-hmm. But when you got 160 pound dude just throwing you around like nothing, and I'm like, I'm way bigger. How is this possible? Right. I had to cut down to 185. Um, but realizing I was never going to be a household name, I'm not going to be on a billboard in uh, Vegas. I had to get a real job. So I went down to the schoolhouse where I met Eric Coleman and uh, some of these other now living legends and uh, got to drown a lot of people. Yeah. So you were, you were one of his first scuba instructors. If I, if I've got that uh, connection, right. Free scuba, even worse. Yeah. You know, didn't even get to do the fun part of diving. I just drown them in the pool and uh, literally not figuratively. I don't like to overuse the word. Literally you would drown them. Uh, I got videos of people losing fingernails trying to get out. It's, uh, I think, and I, I did get fired from that for being too mean. First job I've ever really been fired from other than my father. But um, I think that's the one place that you can take someone in a controlled environment to a life or death situation. And I don't care who you are. And people think that, you know, the 6'4 All-American defensive end from high school or college is going to be your soft warrior. It's not. It's that kid with the chip on his shoulder that has something to prove that doesn't know when to quit. It's that farm boy that gets up at four every morning. You know, it's that psychological component to it. And you couldn't take half these dudes. The ones that I fear and respect the most within the community, you wouldn't be able to pick them out of a subway lineup. And they've killed more people than you can think of. And it's not some poster boy looking dude. I can promise you that. I know so a couple. Was, I know. Uh, yeah, I know. That. I know a couple of those guys, and I won't throw names just because yeah. out of respect, right? And yeah. yeah, very similar. But even a guy like a known guy like a Chad, right? Like that dude was like a skinny kid, but he just had a different level, at least from what I can tell him from talking to guys that know him personally. Just another level of sort of mental stick to itness. Like I ain't stopping. It's not an option. It, it, they're wired different, man. You know, and I think any any high level of anything, yeah, you know, I always said soft dudes are the most in shape, unathletic people I've ever met in my life. You know, you watch them play basketball, it's just an embarrassment to our nation, but the dudes are hard as hell. So if they had some kind of hand-eye coordination when it comes to athletics, they'd probably be at a top level somewhere, whether it be mm. baseball, you know, football, whatever it may be. So if you have all that greatness, but you don't have a way to channel it, what a great community to come into. Go to South, go fight for your country. You know, you're going to do things at a level that you didn't know existed. And we help help shape that. So I did that for, for a few years, you know, finished up college, you know, did, did your standard. I'm going to go out and somehow change the world. Um, got to go uh, support Hurricane Katrina. And that was a crazy experience. Yeah. I met Sean Penn and had my first ND with a can of pepper spray. So I sprayed my, my client on accident, sitting down in his really nice uh, Mercedes. We were rescuing a cat and that thing went off. So that was nice and humiliating. And they looked at me and I said, hey, you guys are gonna use this on people. You gotta know what it feels like. Now that. you know what it feels like. Yeah, this is this is market research, guys. The cat screaming, you know, we're all rolling down the window and they're asking me how long does this last? And I'm like, I don't know, you know, just, just mortified. But I got back to Florida and some guy that I didn't know very well says, hey, man, I saw you in Rolling Stones. That was a pretty cool article. I'm like, that wasn't me. And he's like, oh, yeah, it was. And it was? A very small piece of uh, 
Sean Penn and all his publicists and everything mm-hmm. else. But that was a that was a pretty cool adventure. And then in 2012, I got a phone call from a contract company, and I've been doing that since. And over 30 deployments in my adult career, doing some crazy things. Yeah. So more numbers there than would have been during that seven-year stretch in the military, right? Absolutely. Um, spent a year in Uganda hunting Joseph Kony. Uh, that was a pretty... Uganda, what a beautiful place. You know, growing up in Hawaii, that equatorial-type environment really reminded me of home and the most impoverished, amazing people I've ever met with nothing, rolling blackouts, street food. Um, Just, you know, just it puts perspective on the things that we have back in the States that I think people lose sight of. And uh, it's humiliating, for sure. Yeah, yeah. What's the, to the level that you can tell us, and there's probably major differences, but I mean, what are some of those differences between, you know, from being on an elite team, right, under the official capacity, right, of the American flag, and then doing it from a contract standpoint? Are, are there some similarities? Are there some glaring differences? There are a lot of parallels. Um, what we do primarily now, our customer is where I used to be, so that really helps. And. There's a lot of uh, combat controllers that go into the world that I'm in now because it's a direct parallel. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're doing everything that you would do on the ground in the safety of an aircraft to some extent. Uh, but obviously, there's rules of engagement on what civilians can do up to a certain point. So it's nice because you still feel like you're, you're part of being an effective tool within the, the giant cascade of assets that need to be used to take down these targets. You know, I think the American population thinks that we willy-nilly just drop bombs all over the right. place. Like, if, if the Joe public knew what went into eliminating one bad guy from, from the field of battle, they would be blown away. I mean, there are so many checks and balances, and I promise you we're the only nation that does that. No, no other country does that. And we do it to a very high level. But there's a reason, because, you know, it's a zero-sum game, and you can't fail or else lives are lost. And I mean, if you look at the numbers from the start of the war up until now, I mean, it's probably more dangerous to walk around Chicago or Detroit. I mean, we've done this at a high level for a very long time and very well. And there's just legends walking among us, you know, and these people continue to, to go on and do great things outside of it. Yep. And it's uh, it's cool to be that that small part of history. But it's also shaped me as a man and, you know, all the, the leadership style that it, I've done. I mean, I've ran a site over in country in my current job. And although it's a bunch of people like your dad, you know, pilots are a different breed. <laughs> but, you know, you use those things that you thought were effective on you. You drop the things you didn't, just like a parent would. Mm-hmm. And uh, you'd have to ask them, but I think I've done a pretty good job. Yeah, he was telling me a fun story the other day about some of those first few runs on the bombing range, the very first time you're sort of heavy, right? Wall to wall is what he would tell me to say there. And then just how by training, 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 work, 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 doing, doing the way those things click in, right? You do it, then then you can teach. Sounds very similar, right? You did a lot of that, right? Then the ability to teach and pass that on to the next man. John, this has been just incredible, man. I'm grateful for the time to talk about it. Eric, thank you for hooking us up. Everybody go check out first there foundation right go check those guys out uh because that's why we're here today right they got us connected and uh we want to help them continue to impact not only those combat controllers right 
uh, but their families and uh, for the guys that left families behind, right, to to be able to uh, to take care of them as well, too. So, John, it's been a blast, man. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Brian. Pleasure meeting you, brother. My pleasure, man. He's Johnny Fast. I'm Brian Jodis. That's been this episode of Pick Up Six Podcast. <laughs>